Hello, friends, and welcome back to Seeking Sustainability. Um, Before we get into this episode with a very special guest, I wanted to give some updates on myself. Um, So I might have mentioned this, but a couple weeks ago, I started my first full-time job, like my first big girl job with a salary and benefits, um, which is really exciting. I feel like an adult and I am moving down to Tennessee. Um, I'm so excited. I'm trying to find a house and that's a mess, but, um, when you're balling on a budget and, um, yeah, so this job I'm working, it's a company I've been working for part-time for several, several months and it's just my boss and I, it's a startup company and I'm now her first full-time employee and it is incredible. Um, I get to wear a lot of different hats and I work seriously for like the coolest, most incredible woman in the world. I, and I just feel so blessed. I'm so grateful. Um, so it is a company called Trace. Um, it is a hemp fiber tampon company. So they are disposable tampons. Um, we haven't launched product yet, but we hopefully will be doing some Seeking Sustainability episodes about Trace and talking about things like regenerative agriculture and fiber system, regionalized fiber systems, all of these notions that, and conversations that tie in with you know, the core values of this company. So it's so cool because I'm working for a tampon company, but I'm getting to learn about things like regenerative agriculture and soil health and carbon sequestration, some of which we will talk about actually on this episode. So anyways, we are also starting a book club through my company, Trace. Um, So our first book that we're reading is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Just like my Bible. Guys, it is the best book other than like Harry Potter that I've ever read. It's the best nonfiction book I've ever read. Um, 100%. It is, it is magic. I mean, she's a scientist. The author is an ecologist, but, but writes like poetry and it is the most, it is just for anyone who's interested in the earth, um, please read this book. And if you're interested in joining our book club, I will link the registration to, um, in the show notes. And we have a couple more slots for people, like the first 10 people who sign up um, will get like a free little gift. Um, and we already have, I think like seven or eight people signed up. So yeah, please sign up, whoever you are. It doesn't matter if you don't use tampons or if you're not a menstruator. We would love to have a conversation with you and talk to you about books and nerd out with you over Robin Wall Kimmerer because she's amazing. Anyways, that was long-winded. <laughs> um, so Let's welcome our guest, Helena. Helena. Who is Helena Bennett? She is beauty and brains and British and um, not that literally any of that matters except for the brains aspect, but I don't know. I'm a sucker for alliteration. So (laughs) Helena Bennett is at Earth by Helena on Instagram and she's an environmental educator. So she does posts. um, Honestly, some of them I feel like have arguably, I don't want to use, I guess gone viral in a sense. Um, And she posts about different terminology and topics, and she's really, really knowledgeable. She is a smart cookie with a cute accent. (laughs) And in this episode, it's a little bit different because instead of me, you know, I do ask some of the standard questions that I do every episode, but instead of just asking, I don't know, random questions, um, we actually dive really deep into one of her posts that is called debunking climate and political terminology. So she gives the best analogy of net zero carbon emissions that I've ever heard. We talk about things like carbon offsets and neoliberalism. So some of these terms may be things that you, you know, know well, um, 
or have a deep understanding of, or maybe you've heard of them, you don't know what they are, or maybe you've never even heard of them. So this episode will be a great opportunity for you to develop a deeper understanding of some of these terms. And um, yeah, as always, I hope this episode is inspiring and educational and insightful. And yeah, that's really all. So um, God, I'm so awkward. (laughs) Have a great day, guys, and enjoy this episode. And let's welcome Helena Bennett to Seeking Sustainability. So if I guess before anything, it just introduce yourself and talk about, talk about you, your, you know, how you um, got into environmentalism, if you will, um, and introduce yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. Okay. Um, so hello, I'm Helena. Um, I call myself a, a climate activist, but I actually haven't really done loads of activism like I used to recently, partly because of the pandemic, partly just because of like the type of other work I'm doing instead, uh, which is fine. Um, but that's kind of still my like branding, I guess, on social media. Um, I started getting involved in like um, environmental activism in like early 2018. Um, I actually learned about a lot of stuff to do with environmentalism through becoming vegan, which was initially from an animal rights and welfare point of view. And um, learn about, you know, what's happening in terms of agriculture and emissions, etc. And then from there, learn a lot about other parts of climate change that I wasn't really aware of. Um, and genuinely became quite scared about what was happening. And I think that's what drove my desire to be involved in this area. Um, so I've done like bits and pieces of sustainability and climate change related stuff through my work um and then i decided to go and do a master's in global environmental change and policy at a university in london called imperial i had a great time like i learned a lot met some really cool lecturers and other students um and did my thesis in in collaboration with the climate vulnerable forum which is a group that represents 40 countries most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and that was really cool and I kind of continued my relationship with them after the research finished and I do like ad hoc consultancy work for them now alongside my alongside my full-time job um, and yeah um, I've done some like political campaigning with the Green Party in the UK um, which as I'm sure you can guess is like the environmental climate change party um, I used to be really involved in Extinction Rebellion and kind of stepped away from them about 18 months ago now um, and have done and been part of various little pockets of activism, usually just as like a kind of, you know, either in the background, uh, behind the scenes, helping set things up or um, like distribution content or helping to create content. Um, so, yeah, that's a quick summary. <laughs> that's really cool. So you got your oh, master's gosh. in what was it again? Uh, global environmental change in policy. That's really cool. So what did that consist of? I mean, obviously like policy. I mean, it's probably self-explanatory. The name says a lot, um, but... Yeah, no, it's a good question. So the actual overall master's is called Environmental Technology, but it had absolutely nothing to do with technology, really. Um, <laughs> it meant technology more from like a kind of tools and knowledge mm. point of view. Um, but I then you basically choose a like specialism that you specialize in. So the first term, you do lots of general environmental stuff. So you do like conservation, biodiversity, environmental law, and... Um, economics and that kind of stuff and then in the second term you specialize right down um so yeah did a lot of like international and domestic policy a lot of law um and looked a lot at like the social side of climate change as well as looking at like this kind of scientific evidence for why climate change exists 
Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really awesome course. And most of the lecturers we had in the second term were guest lecturers. So people that were doing really cool research or from different like political institutions or different parts of academia. So you get like a really rounded view of the like climate landscape globally. Um, and luckily it was just before the pandemic hit that we finished that term. So managed to do all of that face to face, which was good. <laughs> um, wow, that's so cool. So you have like a really well-rounded bank of knowledge and I mean that obviously like impacts the the kind of content you put out because I feel like a lot of times like I mean people post content kind of similar to yours but um yeah I mean yours is coming from a place of like genuine understanding for the most part it seems like Uh, I like to think so (laughs) (laughs) I I also feel like a lot of the other stuff outside of academia that I consume is from a really broad range of sources, mm. um, like podcasts and books and articles yeah. and that kind of thing. I think it's really easy to only digest like a super Western narrative of climate change. And actually, I think like this kind of small community on Instagram and Twitter and other places that are you know young climate activists are really good at diversifying what their sources are and how they then Definitely. distribute that knowledge. But when you take that out of context into like other circles, so like for example, my workplace it's really difficult to integrate those issues like, you know, intersectionality and social justice issues and capitalism and people don't want to hear about it. Um, So I'm glad that little community kind of exists on social media and in activism circles that does really get that. Taking it outside of those circles can be quite difficult. Yeah. uh, Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. People think we're real radical. Um, So the question that I typically ask first, um, but I switched it up this time was, and then I'll ask now is in your opinion, what does it mean to be an environmentalist? Oh my goodness. Um, it's philosophical. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, I think generically, and this is probably a, like a bit of a textbook answer. Um, somebody that cares for and therefore changes their actions based around a desire to conserve and care for the natural world. Um, I think the, the like kind of taking a step back from that is, there's so many different aspects to what that means. And there's a lot of issues in the environmental movement around being like a perfect environmentalist. And, you know, you're not vegan, so you're not, a, you don't really care about climate change or you don't recycle. So what's the point in doing these other things to save the planet? And I think we get so caught up in what that term should mean that we forget all the different aspects that need to go into it to make it work. Not everybody has to be completely perfect if they care about the environment perfect and in inverted commas if they care about the environment um and that's something i try and talk about on social media um, i think it's a way more inclusive way of doing things you're much more likely to get people along and on the journey and understanding what they're fighting for than if you know you kind of take an alienating stance of you don't care if you're not a perfect environmentalist yeah that's yeah yeah I completely agree too like I I say I feel like I say this it's probably obnoxious in like every episode like I just repeat myself but like environmentalism is a really multifaceted thing and you can't really look at an issue like in a black and white manner Mm -hmm. um and that's yeah I completely relate to your thoughts on that too because that's kind of why I started the podcast was like how can I talk about environmentalism in a way that isn't black and white and yeah. siloing different industries and how can we bring lots of different types of conversations to the table? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's really awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to ask, so I thought it'd be kind of fun. I don't know if there was any posts that you did in particular that you 
really resonate with or like. Um, but I was thinking of diving into your one that, that it, was it? Oh, looking climate and political terminology. And you literally said in the caption, um, half a slide is not enough to dig deep into these terms. So I figured we could use this as an opportunity to dig deep. Yeah, um, let's do it. <laughs> okay. I said it. I said it's not enough and I did it anyway, didn't I? <laughs> okay. So to dive into debunking climate and political terminology, let's start with, well, first I'll ask, why is it important for people to know these kinds of things? Um, that's a really good question. And it's, so, I think it's so overlooked and not just in climate space, but literally like everywhere in life, having access to higher education is such a privilege. Mm. And, and, and in a lot of cases, having access to education at all is a massive privilege. I think we really overlook that in countries like the US and the UK. Um, but there's definitely like a kind of, you know, the linkages between uh, race and class and income with how many people are going through higher education is really stark. And so it leaves out a whole group of people from like being able to converse because they don't understand certain terminology. Yeah. Um, so that's like one side of things. And it's, it's just a massive way of like gatekeeping people's ability to contribute to, to conversations effectively if they don't know how to articulate themselves in a way that will get them to be taken seriously. And that whole being taken seriously thing is like a whole different conversation anyway. But I guess the other side is actually some of these terms, we use them quite blasé, but they have quite a nuanced description behind them um that we lose sight of when we talk about stuff on social media in a way that's such a like snapshot of a of reality um so i just wanted to like break those down a bit so that a people can use them a bit more in their own languages and conversations and circles um, but b to kind of like debunk a little bit of terminology that people might be using incorrectly because it's been popularized in a certain way and therefore doesn't really mean what it should mean or it's being used in the wrong way that's why i did it <laughs> That was a really good description. <laughs> that was a really good explanation. Um, so let's start with, we don't have to do all of them if you don't want to, but um, carbon offsetting and net zero. That's a good one. I just read an article about that yesterday that I'm going to send you because I think you'll okay. love it. Um, yeah. So let's start there. Cool. Um, I think when I did this on Instagram, I think, is there a little picture of a bath? I'm there like, is a bathtub um, analogy. Yep. Yeah. I love that analogy. So for people who can't see this right now, um, the idea is that imagine a bathtub and there's a sink, uh, sink a plug at the bottom um, where you can drain water out and a tap where water can go in. And imagine the tap with water going in as your emissions and the bath with the water in it is your, the bath is the atmosphere and the water is the carbon dioxide or the greenhouse gas emissions. And the plug at the bottom is what we call a carbon sink. So something that draws carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And when you turn off the tap of, of emissions, the bath water level doesn't rise and you can take the plug out and the bath level will go down and you can put the plug back in and it will stay still. But if you keep the tap turned off, nothing else will come into the bath. So obviously the equivalent, the analogy is describing what happens with emissions. So stopping emitting emissions at all means that no more emissions are going into the atmosphere full stop. And some will be taken out through plugs. In reality are things like you know, planting trees, for example, um, other ways of sequestering carbon through nature-based solutions like conserving peatlands and wetlands and restoring those kind of uh, high carbon sequestering ecosystems. Um, and then there's other man-made ways of doing it. So um, carbon capture and storage or direct air capture, for example. 
um, or other weird geoengineering things that just are a big no-no for me. Um, and I think the, the issue with carbon offsetting is we're seeing it as a solution to the climate crisis without worrying about the tap and the emissions. So we pull the plug out for a little bit thinking, oh great, look at me, I planted a tree because I flew to New York from London, not from where you are because that wouldn't be a very high emissions in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if the tap's still running, it doesn't really mean anything because you can take a few emissions out, but the overall level of the bathtub's still going to go up. I think when we talk about offsetting, in a lot of cases, we're using it as an excuse to continue polluting when really we don't we don't want the same level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide stays in our atmosphere for literally hundreds of years. We need to stop the initial emission going into the bathtub, into the atmosphere, while simultaneously pulling the plug. And we're not talking about carbon offsetting like pulling the plug. We're talking about it as in we're going to pull the plug and also keep putting water in the bath. Um, yeah. That's an awesome analogy and really helpful. No, that was no, that's such a good analogy. And I, yeah, well, so I was just reading an article about like basically the carbon market and, and the intersection with carbon offsets and like, um, like agriculture and that whole thing. I'll send you the article, but, um, cause you'll love it, but it's basically like carbon offsets are okay, but not when a company is using them but not changing their business practice. Like they're using them as, as carbon offsets as an excuse to, yeah. I guess like, I'm not explaining this well, but yeah. Well, that, well that's exactly it. Like they're, so instead of turning off the emissions and not emitting anymore, they're just using something to say, well, those emissions we emitted doesn't really mean anything, but it, yeah. but it does mean something because you're still emitting things into the atmosphere. Um, there's also a lot of other problems with carbon offsets. Um, I mean, this could literally be a whole episode in itself, but just one example is a lot of these companies that claim to be, you know, planting loads of trees to offset your flight emissions, for example, they go into it. There's two main things that are really big issues. One is about taking areas for conservation and tree planting and simultaneously uprooting local and indigenous communities that live in those areas, which actually like is way more detrimental from an overall point of view than planting trees. And B, often the trees planted in certain areas aren't native to the land and the ecosystem they're being planted in and actually do more damage to the local ecosystem and biodiversity than they do to bringing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And then there's this whole other issue of like those trees get planted and then that same carbon offset company will come, come along, cut down all those trees, release all that carbon into the atmosphere yep. and yep. say, oh, we're offsetting some more and replanting in the same place. So it's, it's not only is it a bit of an excuse for people to continue polluting it's also damaging in other ways aside from emissions um and that also isn't really talked about very much in big climate circles yeah yeah no carbon offsets i that's so funny because i am planning on doing um an episode about that um because that's something that i'm having to learn about and and it's really interesting it's at face value it seems like all fine and dandy but it's yeah I mean it's it's used in a way a lot of times that is yeah I mean companies aren't changing their supply chain or their business practices and they're just using this thing to put a band-aid on what they're actually doing yeah Um, so if they're doing that in tandem Mm -hmm. like you know purchasing carbon offsets that fund like small like localized projects or something and they're doing that in tandem with changing their business practices um and making adjustments to their supply chain, et cetera, et cetera, then it's, you know, yeah, it's good. Exactly. But yeah. yeah, so that's 
if you ever want to come on for another conversation <laughs> where you want to talk about a specific thing, let me know. Um, so we talked about carbon offsets. Oh, the Green New Deal. I know that could also be like a whole podcast in itself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Green New Deal. Um, so this term originated in like 2008, I think. Um, and it was, it's basically the, the, the way we hear it used most now is in the context of like US politics, specifically mm -hmm. more left-wing politics as a solution to the climate crisis from a political point of view. Um, it's a play on the New Deal that was brought in by Roosevelt in the 13? Yeah. After the, the um, <laughs> I was like, did I get the year right? Um, 20s or 30s? 30s. The depression was in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and basically, it, the idea of it is that it's a big stimulus to the economy to get things moving again. And the reason it's got the word green in front of it is because all the stimulus investment would go towards green things. So it's kind of like a transformative plan for the whole of politics. It's been used in other countries as well. Like we have people lobbying for a Green New Deal in the UK. Um, but the way that most of us, I imagine, have heard it is from people like AOC and Bernie Sanders and um, <laughs> Ed Markey. So they're the ones that are kind of pushing and being real advocates of it in the US. And the idea of the Green New Deal fundamentally is to completely transform society to be more green. Um, and that encompasses all types of industries. So from like central government to transport to agriculture, to how we consume, to how we you know, live our lives day to day, how we distribute finances, to how we talk about things, how we are educated. Um, and it's, it's not like something you can take one bit of and implement it because the whole thing comes as a package that together really transforms society. Um, and I think it's a good thing to keep talking about. I am worried that we're kind of at a, a breaking point now, whether or not it's going to be something that we see countries starting to adopt it feels like we're going down a more kind of like soft Green New Deal route in countries like the UK and the US where we're getting climate action that seems like really good climate action, but it's such like kind of, it's not face value what we really need to, to overhaul the entire system. Um, and that's a massive shame because it's such a missed opportunity. And I think, especially again, especially in the US, there's this whole narrative around like, oh, it's like a, it's a, communist agenda to take money off the rich and like there's so much false narrative around what a green new deal actually is um which is yeah a huge shame but um that's the kind of gist of it i guess yeah i mean i i really yeah. can't speak to this too much because i don't know even with like the biden harris climate plan like i don't know that much about it. i try to start diving in and learning about it but like i don't want to say it is well i think it i think it's kind of I don't want to say paired with conservative fiscal policy because it, but it's, I think a lot more of a concern. Yeah. Arguably, right. Depending <laughs> on how you look at it, depending on who you ask. I think arguably they're taking a really conservative approach to it. Um, because at least in the U S the big difference is like between Republicans and Democrats, depending on who you ask is like, you know, low taxes, mm -hmm. depending on who you ask. And in a really black and white way in regards to fiscal policy is like yeah. lower taxes and higher taxes but like we need aggressive you know fiscal policy to fund this but it's for long-term mm -hmm. investment you know it's yeah. like prepping the nation for future generations i think there's a there's a real missed opportunity in a lot of countries and kind of on the global stage as well to paint like various pictures of the future and telling people 
and this is just a massive failure of governments everywhere anyway, but explaining to people why certain things are being done, why certain policies are important, yeah. why certain things are being taxed. And it's, it's usually for the people's benefit in most cases. And there's this whole like story that could be told about the future world that we live in and how it benefits everybody and what it means for you and what it means for your children and what, what it's going to mean for your neighbours and your friends and your family and how you live your life and the quality of the life you have and the safety of the life you have. And that's just not, that's, if story's not being told like that, like if you, if you look at someone like Biden, for example, he, when he talks about climate, it's often as a kind of, scaremongering is probably the wrong, wrong word, but a kind of like very dramatic, oh, we need change because this big scary thing's coming down the line. It's not yep. like, guys, I'm going to do this. And it's not just, it's not only going to solve climate change, it's going to transform how we all live. We're all going to be better off. We're all going to have better access to education, water, healthcare, et cetera. And that's what the Green New Deal is about. It's not just about solving climate change. It's about everything. And there's this real lack of like inspiration and hope from world leaders at the moment about the future world that they literally could build if they wanted to. It's just not happening. And it's so disheartening for those of us that want that better future and can like visualize it. Um, yeah, boo you politicians. <laughs> that's such a good point, the idea of storytelling. Because I mean, not that politicians are necessarily maybe the best storytellers because that might not be in their wheelhouse but like they know how to talk about things in the way that they know how to talk about things but like yeah I mean there's literally an opportunity for storytelling because even just like politics in general most people don't care or understand in or in the at least I mean people that I know um and so how can we like change the way we're approaching talking about these sorts of things and how can we tell a story and and in a way that people can understand and digest and doesn't feel like lofty and scary and you know apocalyptic yeah. if that makes any yeah. sense yeah yeah totally because people don't know they're just like oh money's being taken from us and it's going into this like thing that's like the le- a left-wing anti-capitalist like agenda mm-hmm. like it's communist mm-hmm. blah 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 but like they don't even they don't know what components make up that yeah thing and like where their money is going and how it's going to change the world for better yeah I think it says a lot as well like again this is this is more kind of US focused I guess um but you know this whole narrative of having Biden in means bad things for me and my family because I work in the oil and gas industry and Mm. he doesn't want oil and gas anymore so I'm only going to suffer there's like there's a that's not necessarily true anyway but no one's telling these people that no one's saying actually we're going to train you we're going to pay to train you and you're going to go and work in this clean industry. It's going to be better for your health. It's going to be better for the planet. You're probably going to be more prosperous. There's not, there's no kind of like reassurance to anybody. Like I think we've kind of got to the point now where if you're denying climate change, you're in like quite a big minority of the population. And it's getting to the point where people are accepting it, but they're really apathetic towards it because they don't want to change their own situation. And it's a massive failure of governments and, and politicians to not reassure the public that these big changes around climate change aren't going to, you know, take your lives away. We're going to help you transition. What we're trying to do is going to be beneficial to everybody. Yeah, sure, you might have to buy fewer clothes, but, you know, in the long run, that's better for everything. And, like, there's just not... I mean, I'm getting frustrated talking about it because it's not even, like, that difficult to do, you know? No, I completely agree. And, yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to what you said about, like, storytelling. Like, how can we... How can we approach talking about these things in a way that people can understand and like empathize with them and be like, okay, you have this fear. Well, this is how this solution can remediate or like, you know, remedy, remedy yeah. that. Um, yeah, because yeah, again, people look at things in a really black and white way. 
mm-hmm. where like this is bad and this is good and yeah yeah that should be a whole episode that could just be like an actual podcast show and it's I feel like every self. time we talked about we're like this could be a whole show that's gonna be <laughs> yeah um yeah I mean I definitely want to do episodes specific to that because it's confusing and it's complex like I am not qualified to talk about that and it's yeah I mean it's helpful to know about that and people can go oh so that's what that is and yeah um let's see what is next gatekeeping you kind of mentioned this earlier yeah I think this is kind of a simple one to explain um it's the idea that like knowledge and ideas are kind of hoarded by the few not the many um it's actually really relevant in um, like academia for example like we talked about earlier but also actually in like different groups of people in terms of like you look at the environmental movement in, in places like especially the UK and it is vastly majority white um, and you know some of the way that certain like activism groups um, function is automatically deterring to communities of colour people of colour um, so, for example, Extinction Rebellion, a lot of what they stood for was getting arrested and caught, like causing a nuisance to get attention, um, which is kind of, you know, safe for someone who's got a comfortable job or they can rely on their parents' money um, and you're able to then continue your work after, after you get arrested. It's way more dangerous for black people, for example, and if you're low income and you don't have that reliability of like an income or a job, it's really exclusionary to lots of people. Um, and there's, you know, lots of different types of not just extinction rebellion lots of groups that are doing that um and yeah it's this idea that these movements belong to certain people when really like we're all in it together yeah that's really interesting well that's like I was when I was watching the golden globes I was thinking of Jane Fonda who by the way no disrespect to her because I think she's absolutely badass and amazing but I was thinking about how like how the time she got arrested and how she was just gonna like able to continue life Mm -hmm. I think like And again, no disrespect or shame to her. But what you were saying, yeah, I mean, it's kind of glamorizing that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Do you see a difference between the environmental movements in the US and the UK? I think just based on the makeup of um, like ethnicities, the the, the prominent people in the US, like youth climate movement that I know feel more diverse. Um, having said that, I can think of some like really, really brilliant um, activists in the UK that aren't like white middle class. Um, but I think, you know, we don't have what you would call like indigenous native people. Um, we have like very small communities of you know Welsh people that speak Welsh only and would call themselves like native to Wales, for example. Um, so I think that's a massive part of it. And given the role that like indigenous people play in protecting the environment, that's a huge part of the movement in the US that just doesn't really exist here. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's probably more diverse, but that's just because of the makeup of people perhaps. Um, and, uh, but that doesn't mean to say that there's definitely not equality issues in the UK environmental sector by any means. There's, you know, a lot of environmental charities and organizations are almost completely white. The representation at the very top level, especially is just dreadful. <laughs> um, so yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because I, yeah, I really haven't talked to, I know of activists in the UK who like, some of which I would like, or some of whom I would love to get on this podcast, but they're, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so the next one that I'm going to ask about is neoliberalism. I actually haven't heard this term. Yeah, so neoliberalism is like, we kind of also call it like, free market, I guess. People like use the terms interchangeably. Um, and it's basically this like, 
um, more market-led way of doing things. So like market and industry sets the pace for how we exist and the state kind of follows that lead rather than the other way around. Um, it's like kind of like a deregulated state system. Um, and I mean, we see it again in places like the UK and the US yeah. and we think about the power that companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Google have um, and how government regulation doesn't really touch them a lot of the time. Um, and it could be way more stringent on, you know, Amazon paying their taxes, for example, um, and it's just not. Um, yeah, that again could be like a whole separate discussion. <laughs> okay, the difference. This will be the difference between communism and socialism, which I know is like such a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like I think it's not so much what these terms mean. I think it's that we, as as a society, we struggle to understand what an alternative to like what we call capitalism is and I think with all these terms I mean I mean first of all they're like long words and they have they're rooted in like Latin or whatever and they sound super smart when people are talking about them on social media and it comes to us trying to actually talk about and like and break these things down and we're not taught about this stuff in schools I don't know about you guys in the US but you're not really taught about this kind of thing at school unless you do like politics a level which is like the highest like highest grade you can go um so I think there's a massive thing around education there um and I uh, the other thing I just want to say on this is like the way that capitalism exists at the moment is such an extreme version of what capitalism should be so like really it's fundamental actually should be to, to help everybody and to keep capital in the system and the way we're seeing things at the moment is capital is actually like capital in terms of money is being hoarded by a few people and that isn't really how capitalism should work it should work by like continuing to create capital in the system and at the moment that money's not in the system it's being hoarded by people like I'm going to talk about them again Jeff Bezos um socialism and communism are two like different political ideologies where um think things and industry and businesses etc um, are heavily governed or if not owned by um, the state or society um, the, the state being the like, kind of communist version where everything is run from a very central position things aren't really done for profit or gain um, and the issue I think with with this communism everybody's really equal um, ideology is that actually everybody isn't equal and people thrive in different situations and people can be creative in different situations and bringing everyone down to that very like I don't know if you or your, your listeners have read 1984, but that very kind of like base level where everybody is very equal isn't very good for society. Um, and whereas socialism, which is what I would call more probably like likely to be successful, even though we you could argue that we haven't really seen a successful socialist government yet, is much more like community led things owned by um, people, smaller enterprises. You don't you wouldn't have big Amazon organizations, for example. Um, kind of like decentralization and um deregulation of uh, sorry not deregulation decentralization i'm trying to don't want to try and say decentralization and ev- devolution <laughs> um of like big powers um so like you know in terms of climate that could mean like car sharing car rides to work with your little community or having like a community urban farm or having community powered energy source like those kind of ideas is what thrives in that scenario um 
so but I think the main thing around these issues is we're not we're not taught how to understand them properly and therefore they use the contexts in which it that's not right basically um so yeah do you have any favorite resources books or things that you would recommend to people who are wanting to dive into all of these different topics yeah I think this is probably not like uh, a conventional way to answer this but I actually think YouTube is such a good resource for this stuff I agree. like it's all really good reading a theory on like political ideologies but watching a YouTube video is super visual and can give you like I'm sorry a YouTube video that's super visual and can give you good like um you know graphics and like dynamic ways of understanding things I actually think is way better so honestly I would just have a look on Google like what does it mean for a society to be for society to be communist i can guarantee you there'll be tons of videos on there explaining yeah. what it means for people there's a really good one i'm going to try and remember the video and, and send it to you so you can link it in your show notes but a really good one explaining like wealth inequality and it uses oranges and orange juice as an example and i just remember watching that a couple of years ago and being like oh it makes loads of sense all this kind of stuff makes loads of sense now um and for me i just find it it's much quicker and like there are sure there's lots of resources out there if you want to go into like deep political ideology but i think in terms of getting a good grasp and a good understanding is watching youtube videos. it's like your bathtub analogy yeah, yeah. it doesn't have to be like complicated or yeah. overtly yeah. intellectual for it to be valid yeah 100%. yeah so my last question um is as an individual and an environmentalist what gives you hope for the future Oh, so many things. Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> I, so I guess what we were talking about before about like building this kind of future, telling this story of a future world, I envisage that as good and equal access and opportunity for everybody, doesn't matter who you are, um, but, but not ignoring equity, which is this idea of, you know, different people have different needs. Um, and being able to treat people differently and behave with them differently and um, provide for them differently depending on their needs. I'm talking about from like a kind of, you know, government and state point of view, but, but also from an ind individualistic point of view, I love an idea of having a much more community-based society. Um, and all these kind of different things I'm saying naturally lead themselves to being climate solutions as well. Obviously a future without fossil fuels is the kind of, you know, dream, I guess. Um, but it doesn't just mean a future without fossil fuels full stop and something else filling the gap. I mean, like disintegration of this idea of like, you know, big tech and big organizations that are taking control and leading things and setting the direction for how society moves. I'm thinking like, you know, super decentralized, very community people, social led, um, a world in which it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your opportunities and access are completely equal to everybody else. Um, it's a total pipe dream, obviously, at the moment. Um, <laughs> will we see it in our lifetimes? Don't know. <laughs> like to think so, but um, I also definitely am way more of a pessimist about this stuff than I was a couple of years ago. So. <laughs> that's really interesting. I mean, that's a good answer. Yeah, I've, yeah, I mean, like, I think a lot of people would say, like, oh, that's a really idealist kind of thing. So it's interesting that that you say that but sometimes sometimes idealism is healthy um but that's all I mean, if you don't if you don't have that ideal to to try and get to like at least you could make it halfway and be better off than you were before if you set yourself for like i'm not going to dream very big you're not likely to get very big it sounds super corny but i really do believe that 
Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Seeking Sustainability. If you enjoyed this episode or any others that you've listened to, then make sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. Also, to stay connected, you can follow the podcast Instagram at Seeking Sustainability underscore podcast and my personal Instagram at julia.planford. As always, feel free to reach out to me regarding any questions, comments, or episode requests. And of course, share this podcast with anyone who you feel might be interested in learning a bit more about environmentalism and sustainability as well. Thanks everyone, and I will talk to you guys soon.